Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we're joined by Ed Farrell, long-standing conservation architect and now heading up the Professional Practice Program at Lincoln University. We'll be talking about some of the projects he's worked on, like the Grade 1 listed King's Cross Station refurbishment. We're also tackling some of the issues relating to the nature and the value of conservation. So... Good afternoon, Ed. Thanks for joining us. Can you just start, as we always do, by giving us a bit of a short biography about yourself, your where you studied, what got you involved in architecture? Uh, thank you, Austin. I studied architecture in UCD in Dublin in the 70s. Uh, there was a new director for the school, called, an Englishman called Ivor Smith, and he brought in a, a lot of very young architects, a lot of them from the AA, who were teaching at the AA into Dublin. So the way that architecture was taught in Dublin in the 70s was very, very contemporary. And it produced people like Grafton Architects or Donald and Toomey. They were all my contemporaries. And when I did my final presentation, one of the external examiners was um, Professor Higgins. He was a partner in Higgins and Ney in London, and he invited me to come and work in his practice for the summer. And I went and stayed, and I'm still here. So I then, I did my year out in Seaford's office. I was a site architect for the Wembley Conference Centre. And I do remember early in the 2004, 2005, something like that, bringing some friends to Wembley and I couldn't find the building. Subsequently turned out it had been demolished. And in fact, it was one of Seaford's best buildings. I'll interrupt you because I've got a quote here from Simon Jenkins, who said that uh, Seaford blighted London's streetscape with no feel for context or horizon. Uh, we all know what Simon Jenkins thinks of tall buildings and, uh, and uh, historic buildings, but how would you respond? Seaford was the most popular architect for developers in London at the time. Uh, he was also, I think, the biggest practice around. And when I joined Seaford's for my year out, I was in one of the satellite offices. I was very happy to have a job. Was it blighted? The West Tower is not a great building, but it's iconic. And the building at the end of Oxford Street. Yeah, Centrepoint has been hailed as, as pop art. In fact, when I came back to work in Seaford's after I'd spent three years with um, Higgins and May, I worked on Camden Lock, which had some list of buildings on it. And I also worked on some Metropole Hotels and the part of the Metropole Hotel in Brighton was listed grade two. So he did dabble in historic areas. But he didn't like to get involved. He usually left it to his partners to deal with that kind of stuff. The fact that he died in 2001 and at that time, so that's 20 years ago exactly, uh, yeah. the NatWest Nat Tower was the tallest building in the city of London. So yes, you know, things have dramatically changed. Obviously, much to the annoyance of Simon Jenkins. But uh, what do you think about the recent advance of tall buildings in London? Well, you know, it's good to see really good design. And, you know, some of the tall buildings, especially in the city, are interesting. Some of them are really horrible, but that's an architectural statement. So, you know, it may not be what the general public might think. But there's a whole range of build, tall buildings being built around London now. Here in, in Ealing, where I, where I live, there's a whole range of 20 to 25 storey buildings being built, generally around transport and interchanges. They're going to impact significantly not just in, on the visual in, uh, environment, but also on the issue of water cars, traffic, transport. And, and, you know, the more people you have living in an area who want to drive cars, then you're going to get higher levels of pollution. So I don't think the, the um, 
policies have been well thought out. You know, Boris's idea for allowing thousands of tall buildings along the Thames was an open charter for developers. And, you know, my view on developers is they're not in the business of creating environment. Their main interest is in producing dividends for, for the investors, shareholders. Okay, we're already into controversial territory. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you, you started in Seaford's and you have these views on, on tall buildings, which is not opposed to tall buildings, but, you know, you're, you're opposed to bad tall buildings. But what, yeah. what got you interested in conservation per se then? How did you fall well, into I, that? I, I was initially interested in housing. Higgins and they brought me in because um, I had done my thesis on uh, housing in rural Ireland. And when I was in Seaford, so I decided to leave and move on. And I got a job at DRU, Design Research Unit. And they were looking for architects to work on housing for Habentag. So Habentag is the disabled integrated housing company. And I was really, really interested in housing. But then DRU began to lose work. They were working in Iraq, would you believe it? And, and Saddam Hussein decided to cancel a series of projects, including the new metro in Baghdad, of which DRU were designing it. And I thought, actually, it's a good time to move on. And I found this small practice in West London called uh, GHK, Gilmore Hankey Kirk Partnership. And it, it suited me. They were just, they'd been set up for about five years, six years. And each of them had different skills. Uh, Gilmore was a planner, Hankey was an architect, and Kirk was an engineer. And they'd been working internationally as well as locally. So and they decided to set up a practice and they thought I was God's gift to them in terms of the experience I had. So I started off working there and most of the buildings I was working on were refurbishments. So, you know, I did lots of work for um, the, the local authorities in the area, Hammersmith and Fulham. And then we began to do some work on grade two buildings. Hammersmith and Fulham asked us to write some reports on planning applications and list of building applications for alterations to historic buildings. And I got dragged into one and I discovered, you know, I had a kind of a nose for it. And through working in, in, in GHK, I, I got more and more involved in understanding of buildings. You know, when you're working on a, an existing building, the first thing you have to do is understand it. You have to check out its structure. You have to measure it. Although nowadays I would never measure a building. I'd always ask for professional surveyors to survey. They have all the kit. And you do learn a huge amount about, about going into a building and measuring it and looking at the way it's constructed. And that's fundamental to conservation in a sense, if you want to be involved in working in conservation. And I didn't enter conservation to protect buildings. I became specialist conservation architect with the skills I had built up and been able to keep buildings alive and not protect them as museum pieces. And I succeeded in many buildings and been able to adapt them and make them suitable for 21st century and continue to use them. Yeah, so that example you gave about uh, using a professional surveyor who has all the kind of technical kit and the drones and the 3D uh, modelling and all the rest of it, do you think that, that some architects, or maybe even yourself, would have lost something of getting the feel for that building by doing the survey yourself? Oh, not at all. A good survey is, is the basis before you, have, before you actually enter a building. And specifying how the, how the survey should be carried out is also really important. You need to have quite a bit of experience in asking for what you want, especially with the electronic type surveys to do what you want them to measure. You know, going into a building cold before this kind of technology came along, the first thing you had to do was, was sketch out each of the spaces, try and do a sketch of the building. And having a set of drawings by these professional surveyors gets over that big hump. And they're far more accurate than the sketches that I would do. 
Okay. That, that, that's how I deal with that question. Okay. Okay. Good. That was that was me being romantic, but it obviously didn't pay off. In terms of the conservation topic itself, obviously we start on grade listing. Um, everybody's everybody's heard of grade listing, but can you tell us what grades are, what they mean? List of buildings, they're added to a register called the Buildings of Special Architectural Interest and Historically England, they administer the register. So there's three categories of listing in England and Wales, and there's just under 400,000 listed buildings at the last count I was able to chase. So grade two are buildings of special interest, and they occupy perhaps 90 to 94% of all listed buildings. Grade two star are buildings of more than special interest. <laughs> so they're more special. And they're about 4% of the total. And then grade one buildings, they're buildings of exceptional importance. And less than 2% of all the buildings listed fall into that category. And then you have different categories in Scotland and in Northern Ireland, but I won't go into that. And, and how does a building get listed in the first place? You, you make an application, generally through Historic England, and you specify why you think the building should be listed. And then it goes, Historic England will look at all the information supplied there, visit the site, and then it'll go to the uh, digital cultural media and sport is the new one. And, that's, and, and they decide whether a building should be listed or not. Quite often, you know, there is a big debate in the papers about certain buildings that have been listed, especially those listed in the last 50 years. And the newspapers quite often will list buildings that will catch the eye of the public, certain things that you wouldn't expect to be listed. You know, historic buildings, generally, anything built before 1700 is usually on the list. And then beyond that, you know, it's grade two star, grade two usually. There are later buildings that have been listed, Grade 1, for instance, Admiralty Arch, which I worked on um, back in the, the 1990s, was Grade 1, and that's a 1912-1914 building. And how do they get delisted? Because obviously there are properties which kind of fall out of favour in some respects. Yeah, um, well, you can make an application. Basically, you make an application to the department and you put down the reasons why um, you want to have the building delisted. So, you know, there could be, for instance, the building may have suffered serious damage in a fire and you may have lost all of the value that's in that building. You may, through research, discover that the significance of the building is all a load of rubbish. It's nothing to what had been originally thought was correct. The one thing I discovered about dealing with historic buildings is primary sources and having evidence that you can actually say that this was done by the person who lived in the building or the architect and you have records of all of those. So there's lots of different things that you can identify as primary sources. And that's the way of identifying fact rather than uh, hearsay. And then you have to have listed building consent if you're going to kind of play around with these buildings, any work of demolition, alteration or extension that affects right. its character as a building of special interest. But it just seems that, you know, like alteration could be painting something or, you know, it's, it's not major works that we're talking about here that we, we have to get listed building consent. It could be very small alterations, couldn't it? Yes, indeed. I mean, getting listed building consent doesn't necessarily mean you have to get planning permission. Uh, they, they can be separate, but it's always best to check and have a consultation with the planning department before you make an application. There, there are issues which are of significance to the building itself that are important. And, and they have to be described by being in the building before 1st of July 1948 is the current date that I can find. So anything after that 
doesn't form part of the cartilage or attachment to it. Right. But things things that are important. I spent many years working on um, Bramsville House in Hampshire. This was the former police headquarters. And that was a building that was commenced in 1607. The first building was finished around 1627. That's listed grade one. And I spent about two and a half years producing, measuring it, surveying it and producing a heritage management plan for it. And as we got more and more into the history of the building, I ended up bringing in specialist landscape uh, consultants to measure the landscape outside the building, which nobody knew about. And that was part of the heritage of the building itself. But one of the really important things, for instance, in Brahms Hill, they had these tapestries and they were based on cartoons that Rubens had designed. And there were six sets of these tapestries made. They had to be part of the building. They had to stay where they were. And cleaning a tapestry that is, you know, five metres by four costs thousands and thousands of pounds. So that was a problem. But, you know, when I was working on the the, um, Middlesex Guildhall, which became the UK Supreme Court, that had a number of statues, various kings, and that had to be kept, but it was in the wrong place in the redesign. And we had to find a location for it. We couldn't get rid of it. We couldn't move it to another building, which would have been the best solution. Uh, Sometimes you have to just toe the line and see what you can do with it. However, you know, stuff like um, oil lamps and things like that, buildings began to be altered. So you have a lot of grade grade one or grade two buildings that are really mixed up with different types of services as well. So, so if you have like a you know an old oil lamp, is, is the is the best intention to keep the oil lamp and put electric bulb in it, or is that too pastiche for you? I've never come across that. On, on the UK Supreme Court, we did find the original fittings, not the actual lamps, the fittings themselves. In fact, it, they were electric. And we had them taken down. We had them refurbished by a specialist conservation unit. And then they, they brought in electrical engineers to refit contemporary fittings in order to take the lamps, producing the kind of light levels that were required for the different spaces. That costs money, and you need to have the budgets to be able to do that. It's, I mean, it's interesting when you were saying just just earlier as well. I've just drawn up on on screen um, that when you think about listed buildings, you think about castles and churches and goodness knows what from the 17th century. But actually, Anish Kapoor's ArcelorMittal orbit is 10 years old this year. Look out, everyone! There might be a listing uh, coming soon. But actually, James Stilling, uh, number one poultry, is the is the youngest Grade Two star listed uh, building built back in the end of the last century and listed in 2016. I know um, it well. I know it well. I've been up on the roof. They've got a, a really nice wall garden up there and you get a fantastic view over London. But it got some um, stick got some stick when it was being built, didn't it, as a design. So change conservation changes with time, obviously. Well, Sterling is quite an astute architect. Um, and he went from his brick and glass Oxbridge type buildings into postmodernism. I'm not quite sure what led him into that. Um, you know, he died before he could explain it all to us. <laughs> and and it caught on. There, were, there was quite a lot of followers for his, for his impact on what I would call the pastiche postmodern was significant. I remember in Fulham Garden Centre that had taken one of his, the, he did this amazing postmodern development in Germany. And it had this curved wall, which was sloping. And I remember going along one of the streets in Fulham or Kensington and seeing the exact replica being built as a garden centre. Um, I have to say it didn't last very long. Um, there is a building under consideration at the moment, which is the G- GLA building by Foster and Partners on, on the River Thames down by Tower Bridge. 
the GLA are moving to Docklands because it's going to be cheaper. The, the GLA building is under threat of, of, of demolition and redevelopment. So, you know, that, that's not that old at all. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that one. Well, there'll, there'll be uh, 50% of the population not sad to see it go, I'm sure, but uh, then there'll be outcry by others. Um, well, there's very few, very few ministers consult the public. You know, they quite often reject um, Heritage England statements as well. Yeah. Uh, one yeah. wonders, you know, what the decisions are. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of um, muscle to back up uh, some of these kind of official listing procedures, aren't there? Uh, if you if you carry out works without consent to list yes. buildings, then then there's some pretty heavy criminal uh, penalties. So what, what what are we talking about? Well, the worst case is it's a criminal offence, and the historic England have definition of what the criminal offences are. But two years in prison, really, that's pretty tough. And they also on on their on, on the listing is unlimited amount of fines. <laughs> So that could be continuous penalties and that you're not dealing with. You could have enforcement notices and you carry on to demolish or alter buildings. So that's getting into a really extreme state uh, right. where whoever is changing the building or trying to demolish it is not heeding any, any notification. Generally, you know, from my experience in Camden, the enforcement is very kind of softly, softly. And it's not, nothing like you might see on television in the sense of coming down at five o'clock in the morning with police ready to break in. It's, it's, yeah. There's a very important procedures that they have to follow. But, but, but they, to... Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, there, there were a number of instances, weren't there, of people demolishing nice buildings in the middle of the night just to get the... the Kensington and Chelsea potential. did it. Kensington and Chelsea did it with their town hall. And some of the buildings on the A4, the Great West Road, I think, were demolished just before listing process came into being yeah so if you if you get a listed bill of consent uh, how long does that last say no it's a, like like planning permission how long will it last before you have to start work on it well it yeah usually there are quite significant conditions put in if, if you're doing lots of alterations or you have significant changes that you want to make the default position is three years which is the same for planning permission Okay. Generally, the, the conservation officer or whoever is writing the conditions will ask for a number of things to be done, even before you, for instance, start work on a building. You may have to record a whole series of interior fittings or whatever is going on. You may have to do photographic records. You may have to do measure drawings. You may have to take out timber work or metal work or whatever and conserve it and put it to one side. And when you're carrying out the works that have been granted listed building consent, then put them back in again. It's not straightforward. Uh, let me just read out the, the definition of conservation. Maybe I should have done this earlier in the conversation, but uh, conservation is defined as, quotes, the process of managing change to a significant place in its setting in ways that will best sustain its heritage values while recognizing opportunities to reveal or reinforce those values for present or future generations. So there's this thing about heritage values, you know, sounds half objective and half subjective. What 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 does it generally tend well, to mean? Well, well, you do need to have a good understanding of the asset itself. Historic England have guidance on the conservation principles, policies and guidance from 2008. And the values and significance, it, it's quite a detailed document, sets out quite clearly. It needs careful study. You know, for instance, heritage values, there's a number of them that could be based on evidence. So you have historic remains inherited from the past. So, you know, you mentioned castles, etc. A lot of castles are ruins, so we know they've come from the past and they have a certain value. There could be historic value associated with people 
events, aspects of past life. For instance, you know, I was in Liverpool when it was the, the year of its city of culture, and I visited John Lennon's home where he was brought up by his aunt. And I think I've got a feeling it's listed grade two. And it's a standard semi-detached suburban house. So the, 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 you can then have the aesthetic value, which is a lot more easier for architects to kind of define because it's conscious design, uh, artistic endeavor. There can be aesthetic qualities and it can be related to the designer or a building type or even the craftsman within the building itself. So one of the things I remember when I was studying the Brahms Hill building and building up the conservation plan for it, I got a specialist in just by, by look because the building was being uh, revalued for um, Pesner. They, they were updating Brahms Hill and the team wanted to go in there. And one of them was a lady called Claire Gapper. I'd never heard of her before, but she's a specialist on, on plastered ceilings. And she was astounded to find ceilings that had been installed by the craftsmen. Ceiling craftsmen had done work in London before the Great Fire of London, in the great big houses, all of which got burnt down in the Fire of London. But at Brown's Hill, and she was able to say categorically that they were done by the same craftsmen. And of course, Brown's Hill is, is evidential then of something that was done in around the 1620s of examples of very high quality ceiling design. And then you have the communal values, you know, meaning a place for people. So what it means to a person. Communal, a lot of communal values are, are I suppose, around battlefields or war memorials, stuff like that. You know, there's, an, there's permission to do work when it's deemed to be reasonable. I'm sure you've come across in your experience this kind of, maybe it's a parody, but generally this idea that there's a tension between a conservation officer and a planning officer or a conservation officer and a building control officer. So the, the notion about what is reasonable to one might be not reasonable to another one. So first of all, I mean, obviously I, I could ask you who takes precedence, but, but have you come across those internal bureaucratic battles and how are they normally resolved? Yes, <laughs> I have. Um, the, one of the things you have to understand, we went through the heritage values, but you need to also understand significance and the level of significance of, of what applies to the individual building dealing with. Where you do have issues where it's a planning application and a listed building application, the planning officer will usually give the lead to the conservation officer. And, and if there isn't anyone, for instance, on the UK Supreme Court, Mike Gray, in, who was one of the senior planning officers in Westminster, he took on both roles there, but he also brought in English heritage. Um, so the conservation officer usually is the person that you have to deal with. And, and what I have learned is that before you go and see the conservation officer, you get your story right. You go and you blind them with the evidence that you have to show you understand every single piece of that building from primary sources or from evidence that you can find that is the best quality. Then you can make your arguments for change if you wish to make change. Where you need to make change for instance, in terms of making a public building accessible for under the um, Equality Act um, and the, the access to buildings. The, using the evidence that you can find is really, really helpful. I did, for instance, Grade 1 Building Admiralty Arch. The North Block was the main entrance for the reuse of the building when it was being turned into offices for the Cabinet Office. And the South Block, which faces the old Admiralty Building, was down a hill and very steep. 
and both of them required entrances in that would allow wheelchair users to get in. And on, on the North Block, I, I came across Aston Webb as the architect who designed it, and there's been a significant um, amount of information kept by the government in terms of, of the, the archive for Admiralty Art. And I came across sketches he did for alterations to the entrance, which hadn't been carried out. So in discussions with English heritage officers, I showed them the proposed changes in terms of making a hole in the wall that wasn't carried out. And I wanted to make this hole in the wall in order to get a short hydraulic lift in that would get up, take a wheelchair user up six steps rather than have to lift them up or have one of those chair lifts put onto the side of a, a staircase, which looks horrible. And they accepted it. There was no problem, but the detailing had to be good. And on the south side of the building, the, there were a number of steps leading up to an entrance, which was the most commonly used when it was run by the Admiralty. And we found timber inside which matched the existing doors. So we came up with a plan to raise the outside footpath by about a step through gently sloping it from a distance. And that required um, permission from um, the wild parks because they own the footpaths around Admiralty Arch managed to persuade English Heritage to let us lower the flight of steps inside the building, add an extra step to there by lowering the floor. And then we, we found timber inside the building that was going to be, um, it was in, in excess to anything that was needed. And it was, it was hardwood timber. And we were able to extend the existing doors carefully by you know really good craftsmen to come down. And, and we were able to create a fresh entrance to get into the building. and that, required a huge amount of, of um, I wouldn't say argument, but explanation and detailed design and detailed drawing to English heritage. So if you have all of that information, you make these alterations. Historic buildings are notorious for catching fire. Yeah. And, and, you know, they are basically real at-risk buildings. And part of good conservation is putting in fire stopping and dealing with cutting down on, on the way that buildings can demolish themselves by fire, traveling through a building really quickly. That's very useful. So we have authenticity and integrity, another couple of uh, words that crop up uh, regularly in, in heritage uh, documentation. Generally accepted yeah, yeah. that, that um, you, know, you have to consider both. So do you want to explain if it's, you can? Well, I, think, I, think, I think what you're meaning, I, it's, I think it's relating to reconstruction, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's not considered good practice to try and imagine what the reconstruction would be for dealing with a historic building. If you're altering, making significant alteration to a list of building, and you can do it in a contemporary fashion, and the quality of the detailing is correct, you, you, you stand a better chance of getting listed building consent, as long as it doesn't impact on the significance and value of the building itself. So pastiche reconstruction doesn't work. Now, when I was studying the Bramshill House down in Hampshire, I discovered that the building changed. Every century were major alterations done to the building. You should see how a building changed by simply putting in a corridor. The building, when the building was built, corridors didn't exist. You traveled from one room to another through a series, enfilad is the expression they used. And in 1619, 1710, they put a, built a corridor and it changed the use of the building completely. And every hundred years, the building was changed and changed. And in the 19th century, the owners of the building in the 19th century started rebuilding it in the, in the Tudor period style. And it took us a lot of investigation to work out actually what we were looking at was Victorian architecture, not Tudor architecture. On first sight, you think it's part of the original building, but it wasn't. 
So reconstruction, I think, is what you're talking about. And, and you know, there are special ways of dealing with that. You do need to have primary evidence if you want to do it. We worked on Melbourne Castle down in Dorset next to Melbourne Cove. Um, it's, it's part of a huge estate. The building burnt down in the 20s and the landowners eventually got huge grants from English heritage to just consolidate it. And we worked on, on, on that at GHK. And eventually they asked us to reconstruct one of the demolished towers. And we ended up reconstructing all of them. And then they asked us to put a staircase in to get up to the roof. And we designed a very contemporary steel staircase. And one of the things we did leave in the building itself was we left the internal walls, and which are like skeletons of the different floors and levels and staircases. So you can walk in and you can look and see the kind of x-ray of what the building might have looked like. But we didn't tamper with it. We didn't add anything else apart from whatever is health and safety. You can now go there and go up the staircase and walk across the new lead roofs of the building and take a view down to Lowood Cove. Yeah, well, Lulworth Cove itself is uh, pretty beautiful. When we kind of come up to date with the MPPF, National Planning Policy Framework, and documents before it, obviously, they start talking about the surroundings in which a heritage asset is experienced uh, and having to, you know, in some ways protect that beyond the conserved building itself. So if you have a restriction on a conservation building, does that extend to a to, to uh, does it have default restrictions on development outside that building? Or? Well, I think the thing about conservation areas is that um, if you want to do some work in or near a conservation area, you need to understand the special characteristics of that area. They're all different. And usually the local authority will have written a special guidance note on, on the individual characteristics. I was assisting when I was working on King's Cross and Camden. I did assist one of the conservation officers and identifying significance within the within the conservation area itself. So if you're making a development close to a conservation area and it's going to impact on the, that significant story that's going on in the conservation area, you do run the risk of being interrogated and perhaps not being granted. Uh, and there could be any kind of development that, you know, there's a, a dozens and dozens of things you would not be allowed to do. So you do need to have some respect and, and having good designers on board to help through that journey is how development will get planning and, and, and planning permission adjacent to conservation areas. That's the, that's the way forward. It's interesting that you have a conservation area, then you have an area outside the conservation area, which somehow is also restricted by that very conservation uh, area. I suppose the last question, or the last but one question, is a similar thing, which is, um, let me just read this out. A, A local authority can issue a building preservation notice on an owner and an occupier of a property to the effect that the building cannot have work done to it until such time as if it's considered worthy or not worthy of listing. So it's almost like you buy a property... And the local authority can tell you, we may list this in the future, but you can't do any work on it until we have done. Is that right? Seems a bit harsh. Uh, well, it's a BPN notice you're talking about, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and usually they're, they're, they apply to buildings of special architecture or historic interest. So it's not like somebody buying my house, which is Lake Victoria, but it's of very little interest. So if you're buying a property that has... Um, you know, special architecture or historic interest. You know, the caveat emptor applies, doesn't it? Buyers beware. You need to be. You need to do your homework. So, if you um, buy John Lennon's house ten years ago, twenty years ago, his, his auntie's house. His auntie's house. Okay. <laughs> well, it's it's a small semi-detached house in in, in suburbs of Liverpool. Uh, it only lasts six months. A BPN oh. notice. 
right. doesn't last forever. And, um, you know, you can't do any work within that six month period unless you actually want to make an application, you know, going through the processes of making an application for a listed building. Um, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not as simple as the question you put. The buildings would have alerted the buyer to the fact that this is a special building or is potentially a special building. Yeah, my, my questions are simplistic, I have to admit, especially when it Not comes all, to... they're great, great. I, <laughs> I know the answer, so that's good. <laughs> We've come to the end. Final question, really, uh, which is um, I'm giving you the authority to be mayor for the day. What what building would you list? Well, actually, buildings are listed by the Minister for State. <laughs> i tell you what, Ed, because it was a flip and throw, I'm going to ask you that question again a bit more right. simply, right? So here yes. we go. Uh, so final question, Ed, um, if you had the power, what building would you list? Okay, I, I can't give a simple answer because, you know, lots of buildings change over their lifetimes. And a huge number of buildings that I've looked at, which are listed grade two star, grade one, have had huge changes carried out to them. And that's what makes the building interesting. So I'm, I'm really reluctant to see buildings getting listed because nowadays the, the application for listed building consent is really difficult if you want to make significant changes to buildings. But there is a building local to me in our local park, and it's the turn of the century. It's Arts and Crafts, 1910-1912, and it's not listed. In fact, the building was refused listing, and there's a developer wanting to turn that two-story extensive Arts and Crafts building into eight apartments. Micro-apartments is the way I would describe them. So if I had an opportunity, I can't give the name and address or the architect because that wouldn't be. I'd have that building listed. Your wish is granted, Ed. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ed. That was uh, excellent, excellent, Ron. Really, really interesting. I learned a lot. Um, looking at the legislation and some of the criteria for assessing the conservation of buildings and strategies and policies that you will have to consider if you so wish. That was Ed Farrell, architect and program leader in professional practice at Lincoln University. That's all for today. But if you want to subscribe to the Professional Practice Podcast and listen to the archive, please follow the link on our website, on SoundCloud or iTunes. My name is Austin Williams. Thanks for listening. Till the next time, goodbye. <laughs>